Good evening. My name is Peter Hine. I'm the president of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York. I'd like to welcome all of you to our Constitution Week meeting. The United States Constitution was signed on September 17, 1787, a momentous event that we celebrate this week. Uh, we will start with an invocation by Father Cullen. Thank you, Peter. As we come together tonight to celebrate and reflect with our speaker on the United States Constitution, it seems very appropriate that we pray first for someone who has represented in our own age across nearly the whole century, and especially for the last 70 years in particular, the great tradition of English government and common law from which our Constitution was born. Namely, if you will join me in praying for Her Majesty, the late Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. Let us pray. Merciful Father and Lord of all life, we praise thee that thou hast made us in thine image and that we reflect thy truth and light. We give special thanks for the life of thy daughter Elizabeth, for the mercy she received from thee, and for the example that through her life of service love and faith she has set before our eyes above all we rejoice in thy gracious promise to all thy servants living and departed that we shall rise again at the coming of our savior jesus christ we pray that in due time we may share with our sister that clearer vision when we shall see thy face in the same jesus christ our lord tonight also as we come together I think of the 23 carved bas-reliefs that line the upper walls of the United States House Chamber. The reliefs are the heads of the great lawgivers and lawyers of human history. There we find such figures as Moses, Solon, Hammurabi, Justinian, Maimonides, Edward I, Grotius, Napoleon, Blackstone. Indeed, we surely must add the principal author of our own United States Constitution, James Madison. Let us pray. All provident Father, thou art the Lord of all the nation. All times and seasons are of thy making and belong to thee. As we come together this evening to remember the great achievement of laws well made, may our words keep hollow the great deeds of our ancestors and render us ever mindful that our achievements are the crowning of thy gifts. And all law must be rooted in thy great eternal law. Hallow and bless our conversation, our talk and our banquet, that we may keep faith with our ancestors and continue that great hymn of praise that they first raised to thee on this magnificent continent. And as we are continued to be sustained by its foundational laws, we ask this in thy holy name, amen. I'd like to call on Scott Dwyer to lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. You can all stand and turn behind you. The flag is up at the top. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 
we're here this evening in the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Educational Center for American History, which we refer to as the Davis Flag Gallery. And uh, Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York was formed in 1883 by grandchildren of those who by military or civil service achieved American independence during the Revolutionary War. We seek to perpetuate the memory of those patriots. Uh, just a moment on upcoming events. Uh, we have our Nathan Hale Day commemoration tomorrow, Friday at noon in front of the Nathan Hale statute commissioned by our society that sits in the secure area in City Hall Park. Uh, the public is welcome, so we invite all of you to join us tomorrow. If you are interested as a son in participating in our color guard, which we would welcome, uh, please come a little bit before then, perhaps at 1130 to carry a flag. Then our evacuation day dinner will be Monday, November 21st. We reenact the 13 toasts that were given at a banquet to honor George Washington the day the British Army evacuated New York City. We then recognize Frederick Samuel Talmage at our Talmage Day stated meeting, which is Monday, January 23rd, 2023. And our annual gala, our annual George Washington birthday ball will be Friday evening, February 24th, 2023 at the Metropolitan Club here in New York. So we look forward to seeing you at those future events. I'd now like to recognize and welcome several of our officers who are present here tonight. Uh, Peter Sherwin, our secretary. Peter, thank you for coming. Uh, also, I'd like to recognize our registrar, Scott Jeffrey, and our chaplain, Christopher Cullen, who you have just heard from. I'd also like to recognize past president, Bob McKay, who continues to play an active role in a number of our committees and who has also shown great leadership in his generosity to our society, including to our 250th anniversary campaign. I, I will also recognize members of the Long Room Plan Giving Association and Bob McKay is one of the leading members of that uh, association. And thank you for that, Bob. Uh, we're also pleased to have friends from some other societies here, and in particular, Melinda Allison, Vice Regent and Registrar of the Fort Green Chapter of the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Melinda, thank you for joining us, and thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, I, at this time, I would like to recognize our Registrar, Scott Jeffrey, uh, and do we have... Uh, Okay, so we will postpone that and do that a little bit later. Thank you, Scott. So tonight's event has been organized by our speakers committee. It's chaired by Jed Doty and Bob McKay serves as a member on that committee. And many thanks to Jed and his committee for arranging for tonight's program. So I'm gonna call on Jed Doty at this time to introduce our speaker and he will also moderate a question and answer session to follow the remarks. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Peter. Um, and good evening and welcome. It's my great uh, pleasure to see so many people here and uh, to introduce tonight's speaker, my good friend, Logan Byrne. Uh, Constitution Week was spearheaded by uh, the Daughters of the American Revolution in uh, the 1950s. And the stated purposes of the event are uh, threefold. One, emphasize citizens' responsibilities to protect and defend the Constitution. Two, inform people that the Constitution is the basis for America's great heritage and our foundation for our way of life. And three, to encourage the study of the historical events which led to the framing of the Constitution in September 1787. Needless to say, this is a week that is right up our alley here uh, and is deeply important to us. I think when most people think about the Constitution, they probably focus mostly on the text, Bill of Rights in particular, 14th Amendment, and some of our landmark cases, Murray versus Madison, Brown versus, Brown versus Board of Education. But as wonderful as the document of the Constitution is, it's rather uh, short and not always specific. And it turns out that a lot of our constitutional understanding isn't necessarily directly derived from the text, but from uh, historical precedent. And a lot of people have contributed to that historical precedent, but I think it's fair to say that no one has done that more than George Washington. And one of the main reasons I know this is because I've read Logan's book, um, Blood of Tyrants, George Washington and the Forging of the Presidency. Um, published in 2013, I can say this really is a book that really only Logan could have written. I mean, it is uh, witty, energetic, fun, uh, cliffhanger after cliffhanger. And it just wonderfully combines his legal background. He's a clinical lecturer at Yale Law School his gift from dramatic storytelling, which I assure you will be evident uh, shortly, and his passion for collecting every scrap of knowledge related to the Revolutionary War. Logan is also a, uh, himself a son of the revolution. Uh, in this book, which won the William E. Colby Military Writers Award, Logan walks us through the numerous episodes uh, that confronted George Washington and tested him during the Revolutionary War, and how in responding to those, he set precedents that guide us to this very day. I can think of no better way to celebrate Constitution Week and I'm delighted to welcome Logan to the podium. Wow, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. What better place we possibly have to have in this historic location to have this conversation? It is the perfect spot with the perfect people um, to have the conversation with. So thank you for having me. Um, it is a great honor. Uh, so I, I teach about the Constitution. And I use something that's sometimes seen as radical in um, academia today. I keep bringing the, the conversation back to George Washington, which sounds crazy to many people's ears in academia. Why would I be talking about, uh, louder? Okay. Um, why would we be talking about modern day issues like government surveillance or drones or sort of high tech issues and keep talking about George Washington in conjunction with these modern times? Well, I think he is completely relevant he is the indispensable man that we need to be speaking about when we're deciding what the constitution means today. Um, as my, my mother would be very upset with me if I didn't mention this, a, a proud uh, DAR member, we are related to James Madison, who is the father of the constitution. Um, that's where I get my height from. Um, he was our shortest president of 5'4". I am taller than 5'4", thank you very much. Um, but even still, even though there's, there's that family connection to James Madison, George Washington is, again, the dispensable, indispensable man who we need to look to when we're deciding what the Constitution means today. Um, and, and I think the Constitution is seen to this day as sort of a shining light that sort of brings people in 
brings the, the great and the finest from the, from the world. In fact, we have a, a very recent citizen, Irina Hall here today, just got her citizenship, coming to our, our great incredible nation because the promise that it brings um, and what an incredible place it is. Um, so I, when I'm teaching about history, I look to George Washington for two main reasons. The first is, I think it's a land of us to learn from our history. What did the founding era, what did they do right? What did they do wrong? What we learned from that? Um, and learn what did the first Americans think when they're determining what are the rights of citizens? What are the powers of government? It is important for us if we believe in democracy to think about what was when we the people enshrine these rights into the constitution, what did they have in mind? Um, if that seems a little too principled for some people, there's a very pragmatic second reason why I looked at this history. That is, like it or not, and a lot of people like it, a lot of people don't, but this affects modern law. It's a very direct impact on modern law. And if a lot of times we'll have these uh, debates, um, I was at NYU this afternoon, and we're sort of debating originalism and how much weight to give this history when interpreting the Constitution. Um, and like it or not, originalism and using history and constitutional interpretation, in many ways we've won. Um, the vast majority of judges, justices use history to interpret the, interpret the Constitution. As Justice Kagan said, we're all originalists now. So we've really won over quite a broad swath of the judiciary with looking to history and George Washington in particular to determine what are our rights as citizens under the Constitution today. Um, okay, so what, what does it say? What does history say and how does it relate to us here and today? Um, well, if you strip away the technology and look at the history and what were the rights of citizens, what were the powers of government, and support the technology actually has a whole lot to say about today. Um, so George Washington, um, when he was first um, uh, appointed as the commander in chief, this is uh, uh, June of 1775. War breaks out in April. In June, the contents of Congress gets together and they decide we need um, a commander in chief to lead our forces. But they didn't really know what that meant. They weren't quite sure what is this new concept of American Commander-in-Chief. We know what we don't like. We don't like what the king is doing. And if you look at the, the Declaration of Independence that came out in July of 1776, of course, it's a laundry list of what the king was doing wrong. Things like um, representation uh, without uh, taxation without representation, things like uh, property rights, things like the idea of general warrants. This is the sense of, oh, I've um, you know, by order of the king, everyone empty your pockets versus I have probable cause to search you because of X, Y, Z. So one is law enforcement. The other is a grievous transgression against our rights as dragnet searches. Um, so these are things that um, people are willing to fight a war over, these rights. So it's really important to, that we remember them and know what they are. Um, so they know what they don't like about the British king they don't know what this new American concept is. So they need to experiment and they need to choose the person that's going to lead these forces very carefully. Um, because they look back at their history, being good Americans, we always look to our history and we learn from it. And they saw that time and time again, when you give a military man too much power, what does he do? He keeps it, right? So we don't want to repeat this cycle. So when they're deciding who the 
this new American commander in chief would be, they're looking at two men. They're looking at a man named Charles Lee, who um, had a lot of military experience, um, in many ways, a much more obvious pick for the job. Um, they also sort of walked around a pack of dogs. He was caught in a brothel at one point. Not exactly sort of the moral figure you want to create this new concept around. So instead they turned to George Washington. George Washington shows up at the Continental Congress wearing his Virginia militia uniform. So lesson one from Washington, always dress the part. Because of course, when they're talking about military matters, they look to the tall guy in the, in the room wearing a military uniform. And now granted, he had been, um, he had uh, not been part of the Virginia, Virginia militia for about 20 years at this point, but still he put on the uniform, it still fit. And he also had great tailors as well. Um, and so he shows up and he dresses apart. And what, what Washington had was what they called a martial dignity. He was a principled man um, that they thought they would protect their liberties and not repeat that cycle of you know, giving power and trampling their rights again and again. Um, but it's an odd choice in the sense that he didn't have a whole lot of military experience. In fact, he arguably helped start the French and Indian War when he mistakenly attacked a French diplomatic party. Um, and after, when the war started, um, he fought very bravely, but he wasn't sort of the brilliant tactician necessarily that Charles Lee was, but still it was more important to them that they had a man of principle. Um, that would help define where our new country was going. Because um, again, it was experiment. They didn't know, they didn't know where they're going yet. Um, so they send Washington up to Boston. And uh, in Boston, uh, by June 1775, we have about 8,000 British redcoats besieged within the city by about 20,000 American militiamen. These are farmers, merchants, guys with guns. So Washington, as the newly appointed commander in chief, he looks at this situation and says, okay, 8,000 versus 20,000, the numbers are on my side, let's invade and take up this army, right? Makes perfect sense. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes back to Congress and sort of, you know, Congress, may I invade Boston? This is a radical precedent he's setting. What he's doing is he's establishing civilian control. This is quite radical for the time. And of course, um, Congress comes back and they say, no, you may not. You may not uh, invade Boston. That will destroy one of our most important cities. And Washington says, as you wish. Again, radical precedent, civilian control. And sure enough, the British uh, escape. And <laughs> we pay for it because they escape up to Canada. And then their next point of attack is going to be New York City, of course, uh, the best port around. So the British have the most powerful Navy on Earth. And they want to use that to subdue the, what they saw as rebellious colonies. And New York is the perfect place to do that because it's the best port and it has um, great places to, to house and supply their army. And everyone knows this, Washington knows this. So he marches down from, from Boston. I was always amazed at how fast these people could walk. Um, you know, give someone a drum, they can apparently walk very quickly. Um, and they march around down to um, New York and they start trying to fortify Manhattan and Brooklyn. But Washington, even with his sort of, you know, lackluster military history at this point, he, even he realizes that if you're fighting the most powerful Navy on earth and you have virtually no Navy of your own, perhaps you shouldn't try to defend an island, right? So he says to Congress, we should make our stance inland. Congress comes back and it's John Adams writing 
um, as the president of Congress at this point. He sees no irony in saying that um, I have no military knowledge, but politically speaking, it is imperative that we make a stand in New York City. And of course, Washington says, as you wish. And sure enough, we are trounced in the Battle of Long Island. We almost lose half of our army and Washington in Brooklyn. Um, we're only saved when the Nor'easter rolls in. Um, and they, they call it sort of divine providence that the Nor'easter rolled in end of August of 1775, the last two days in August into the first two days of September. And we use this storm to escape. So if you think of the geography, a Nor'easter, you know, these nasty storms we get where the, the wind's coming from the Northeast that kept the British ships from sailing up the East River and circling Washington and Brooklyn, where it's pinned against the East River. And Washington, you, and the, Washington uses the uh, American fishermen who say, oh, well, I could still work in this. I'm used to this. And he ferries the, all the, um, the troops back. And on the last morning, Washington stayed with the last men. That, he was that kind of general. British generals would be you know, giving orders from afar. Washington was in the front lines, waited to the last man. That's the kind of leader he was. But sure enough, the storm ended. The fog, this is on multiple accounts within soldiers' journals, the fog stayed just long enough for Washington to get in the last boat and was ferried across to safety in Manhattan. Okay, so we live to fight another day, but still the war is far from over and Washington goes back to Congress. And he says, well, that went terribly. We need, to, um, we need to make our stance inland. I can't fight the Navy and the Army at once. Um, and again, Congress comes back and then they do what Congresses do best. They form a committee and they send that committee to Staten Island to have a, the Staten Island Peace Conference. And the British say, sure, you could have peace, but all of your leaders will be hanged. Now, all of you are the content of Congress, you're sitting in Philadelphia in Independence Hall. Someone visit Independence Hall. It's a, it's a nice spot. And you're um, and you hear this, and you think that's a terrible idea. We're not taking those terms because it means you will be hanged. Um, and they say to Washington finally, okay, you can retreat. But it's too, it's too late because the British are already invading across the East River. And about half of our army is trapped south of where they invaded and the British troops are in Murray Hill. Now, Murray Hill is named after Mistress Murray. Now, there's lots of lore from the era from multiple sources, so it's unclear how, to, how much truth there is to this, but there's, there's some truth that's coming from lots of um, contemporaneous sources that Mistress Murray was a proud Quaker, and she invited the four main British officers of the invasion into her house. That she gave them lots and lots of Portuguese wine and then quote, caused them to tarry for four hours. We don't know what she did, but God bless her because that gave Washington enough time to escape up the west side and out into New Jersey. Um, so we lived to fight another day. So Washington is now uh, retreating and he's retreating to New Jersey. And people are, are getting upset with how this war is going. Why does he keep retreating? Because historically speaking, you win a battle when you have a fight and you control the land after. It's sort of as simple as that. And the vast majority of generals throughout history would sort of rack up these victories. Um, and that's how you win. But Washington is, again, his military background was lackluster. He was a political genius. He was fighting a very different kind of battle. He was uh, approaching this war in a radically new way. He instead was viewing it the political struggle and the fight for liberty. Who's winning the PR battle? And 
who's winning the battle with the British taxpayers? So think about today. Putin is, um, has modern warfare and is trying to project power into a neighbor. Think of how much trouble that he is having, how difficult and expensive that is. Now rewind 200 years and use that technology to try to project power across the Atlantic Ocean. Imagine the, the expense of that. Washington is thinking in these sorts of terms. And he thinks if I can drain the British coffers enough, they will lose their will to fight us. And that's how we get our independence because I can't fight them. They're, they're, too, they're better armed. They have more troops. They have their Navy. I can't fight them on those regular terms. But what actually matters is getting this great nation in the end, um, which was genius. But think of the geography now, how it's changing. So again, you're the kind of the Congress, you're in Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The war is no longer a far off war in, in Boston, or even New York is a New Jersey away at least. Now they're at the Delaware River. And they just said, they're gonna have you all hanged. Um, so this is December of 1776, when they decide that they will um, change their tune. And they grant Washington with what they call dictatorial powers. I know how that sounds. It sounds terrible to our ears. But when they would hear dictator, they would think of the ancient Roman Republic. And they would, um, the ancient Roman Republic, when it was under great threat, the Senate would be disbanded and they'd give all the power to one man. And then that man would hopefully use that power to repel the threat and then hopefully give it back. It didn't always work out that well, but they hope with Washington, this moral principled man who seemed to really believe and fight for liberty, that he would give it back afterward. However, we were faced with a really important philosophical dilemma. And that was, we are not ancient Rome. The sovereign was not the Roman Senate. It was certainly not the contest of Congress. It was we the people, a much more dispersed group. Um, and we the people are then stripped of their rights to give it to anyone. I don't care how, how amazing George Washington is. If you start stripping we the people of their rights, you're acting just like the king. So what do they do? We're good Americans, we innovate. Americans have always been a very innovative people. And their innovation, again, was an amazing political innovation. That was to separate out the powers, separate out the political powers and the military powers. The political power remained with we the people. That meant that citizens retained their rights. This was incredibly radical. The fact that, um, Washington was one of the was the only major revolutionary figure to never declare martial law and strip the citizens of their rights was a, a radical new precedent that he was setting. Um, this meant that the courts kept operating, the um, the Continental Congress, you, you know, you all disbanded and reconvened in Baltimore, um, which a lot of people wrote people not were not fans of Baltimore in their papers for some reason. Um, but they became in Baltimore, and then um, the, the courts kept operating, then the, the state governments and legislatures kept operating, and then citizens kept their rights. Okay, but then what did Washington get? What were his powers then, if he's this new military dictator? Well, he got the military power, which meant when it came to um, foreign affairs, dealing with foreign nationals, dealing with his troops, he was much more empowered. And this meant that for the rest of the war, there was sort of this divide between um, which part the people, the citizenship of the people that he was dealing with, how much power he had or didn't have. And down to this day, you will see in Supreme Court and other opinions, 
a divide between the presidential power and the meaning but it says under article 2 section 2 the president shall be commander in chief of the army and navy what does that mean so they'll look back again and again to what george washington the only commander in chief he'd ever had when they wrote the constitution and when they ratified it what had he just done and you see this striking divide over the powers of the president over, over american citizens which again was sort of kept with the people we the people versus the powers of the presidency over foreign affairs and foreign nationals and his own troops and that divide reverberates back down to this day um and i think it's important that we remind ourselves of that of this history and we don't forget um george washington wrote and it really stuck with me he said the foundation of our empire was laid not in a gloomy age of ignorance and superstition but an epic when the rights of mankind were better understood and more clearly defined. In this auspicious period, the United States came to existence as a nation, and if its citizens should not be completely free and happy, the fault will be entirely their own. So I hear that, and I hear that as a direct charge to each and every one of us to be actively involved in, in amazing organizations such as this um, in their community, to be um, you know, pushing and fighting and um, politically you know, voting if you don't like who's running, running for office and being involved in the campaigns um, for trying to push and be a, um, a part of this great nation to make sure we're continuing to make it better and better and we're staying true to our founding principles. So I, I thank you for having me. I'd love to, to, to speak with you more and make this more of a discussion and answer any questions. Thank you very much, Logan. We'll open it up uh, for questions, but I'm going to take the prerogative to ask the, the first one. And uh, I'm just curious, you talk about how George Washington had to um, go against his better instincts sometimes because he was setting a precedent. Was there any ever a time where you said, screw it, like, I, I just need to win this war here and, you know, precedent uh, be damned? So uh, a couple of times he, he was asked to. So a good example would be uh, the story of Benedict Arnold. So everyone knows Benedict Arnold, the great trader, right? So um, people don't focus on the fact that earlier in the war, he was one of our most important officers. Uh, the Battle of Saratoga, very much thanks to Arnold, um, but he felt that he wasn't getting the accolades that he deserved. Um, and he also sees how it looks like the British are going to win the war. So he thinks, oh, I might as well make a quick buck and come out on the winning side. So he decides to sell out West Point. Has um, anyone visited West Point? You've seen it? Beautiful. And that beautiful hook in the river, um, it's very Instagram worthy now. Um, a lot of wedding photos were there. But back then, they would see it as, ah, the British ships need to tack around that. That makes them vulnerable to cannon fire. Oh, sorry, I'm back. I'm off camera. Um, makes them vulnerable to cannon fire. So that's a perfect place to have a land-based defense against this Navy that we're, that's sort of, we're trying to fight. Um, Arnold knows this. And so he asks Washington um, for control. And originally, West Point was Fort Arnold. Um, and he decides he's going to have this dance where he's paid the equivalent of about 25 million today's dollars to sell at West Point, the British. And he's working with the scheme with two men. Now, their nationalities are important here. The first was a um, man named Joshua Head Smith, who's a loyalist. And then there was another uh, British intelligence officer named John Andre. And they're relaying the information from Arnold at West Point down to the high command here in Manhattan. And they, um, Luckily, they got captured in, in Westchester. And Washington goes to Smith 
and says, I have enough evidence to hang you on yonder tree. He wants to. And everyone wants him. This guy looks as guilty as sin. And Washington wanted to kill him too. He deserved execution. But he didn't. It was more important to him that since Smith, he was a loyalist, he was one of the hated loyalists that are about 20% of the population. Um, it was more important rather than getting justice to instead set the precedent that American citizens, even though he didn't want to be American citizen, were given rights in due process. So instead he gives Smith a two week long trial with due process, which is seen at, for the time, many thought this was outrageous. This guy is as guilty as sin. You read the man's autobiography, even in his own words, he doesn't sound, he doesn't sound very good, but still he has due process. Um, he's an, he was an attorney, he represented himself, and a good attorney would not do that, but he did. And he gets off because he argues that as an American, you need to prove a, there's a higher burden of proof. And you need to show, I knew I was doing something wrong. I, and from my perspective, I'm just doing what an American officer, which Benedict Arnold was, I'm doing what I was told. And sort of, yeah, right. It was more important to Washington that he let that man get off um, and set that precedent for, for respecting civil liberties than to get sort of the, the justice that he felt that was deserved. And I think that's sort of when you, you look to, you know, I find that's really interesting in, in history to look to sort of those hated segments of the population and how they're treated. And that's a great way to see what are the principles of a society and see how they treat sort of most despised among them. And that's how Washington treated them. You, yeah, uh, if I heard you correctly, when Washington was defending New York City, uh, you were suggesting that he asked Congress for instructions and was really desirous of pulling back as opposed to trying to defend a very difficult position. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure, so he hopes that, um, he, obviously, he wanted to defend every inch of the United States that he could. Um, but he saw it as realistic enough to realize that when you're, you're fighting the Army and the Navy at once is just too difficult. So he asked Congress twice um, to see, is there a way, um, you know, can we make our stance inland? Because militarily, that made a lot more sense. So as much as he would love to defend, um, New York, he realized that that was sort of just an indefensible location when you're fighting the most powerful Navy. Um, and, and the first time they rejected him, and the second time they stalled him, and then he narrowly escaped death and we almost lost the war because of it. You mentioned, thanks for the talk, I'm really interested in that, definitely engaging. And, um, you mentioned that like the Washington still affects laws today Absolutely. So, I mean, politics sort of creeps into everything these days, doesn't it? Um, and I think it's really important is that we sort of, you know, sometimes step out of the politics and look into founding principles. What are sort of principles and sort of what sort of bugs me the most is that people will criticize, you know, this president for this thing, 
And then when, when it's their guy, whatever that, whatever that is, doing the exact same thing, it's fine. But what if you don't like the next guy? So a good example would be um, Alawaki. Um, he was um, he was a he was making terrorist training videos, American citizen making terrorist training training videos in uh, Yemen, and President Obama used a drone strike to execute him. And I found this worrisome because what it did was it made President Obama, and that was the president at the time, and possibly all subsequent presidents, judge, jury, and executioner for an American citizen. In Washington, if you go back and step away from the politics for a second and look to the history, Washington's precedent and arguably what he defined the presidency to be would say, no, you need to have some sort of due process for this person. And now granted, they were searching for Alawaki for years. So did they have time to have some sort of uh, you know, process from afar? You know, if you can't necessarily capture him, that's, that's a different story. But can you have some sort of due process to, to say, okay, you know, President, you are authorized to execute this man when you find him, because we've had we've weighed the pros and cons, and we've sort of you know his guilt. Um, there's no attempt to do that, and you know supporters of, of President Obama um, were were fine with that when it happened. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa! What happens when you don't like the next guy? And they really didn't like the next guy. So, but then it became not okay again. So it's sort of what we need. I think it's really important for the politics is being principled. And I think what this history provides, it sort of helps bridge, or I don't know if bridge is the right word, but somehow hopefully bring each political party out of their, 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 their sort of camp, is looking at this history and these founding principles to sort of have a guidepost. I find, I love speaking with, with, with organizations like yourselves, but I especially love speaking with, with schools because I feel like they don't remember, um, they weren't they're alive yet, so they don't remember the past. Um, like we might do, those of us are a little older. And I always think of sort of the, the boiling the frog metaphor, where a lot of, you know, the, the frog is, in the, is boiling slowly, 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 and then before he knows it's too hot. So I think another important point of this history is to show how far we've strayed. You know, in some ways we've gotten a lot better, but in other ways, maybe we've gotten arguably worse. But it's important to know how far we've gone in either direction and have these conversations so we could think to ourselves, wait a second, are we the frog being boiled? Or is this, as citizens, are we okay with this? You know, should we be holding our politicians accountable for this? Should we be electing different politicians? I don't know, but it's, it's important to have these conversations and see where we are in comparison to where we were so that we're being informed. Yes. So they, um, okay. So the, the invasion of Boston. So Boston started being invaded. Um, well, I mean, also going back the occupation of Boston, going back before the revolution to the sort of the you know, post Boston massacre. Um, when they started, um, the, the Bostonians started rebelling quite early. And then that was part of, you know, the, what, why war broke out was because the British kept trying to subdue Massachusetts and the war officially started in the battle of Lexington. Uh, April of uh, April 19th, 1775, and, um, and then Concord. And then sort of they, as they were getting the munitions the, um, the, the, that the, the militias had, 
the British were marching, collecting the munitions, and then the uh, Patriots were trying, trying to stop them. And they started reverting to sort of guerrilla warfare to try to just pick them off. And so the British uh, regrouped back in Boston. Um, and that's sort of then as word got out and the militias were called up, um, that's where we wound up by June of 1775 with Washington showing up and he has the 20,000 versus the, the 8,000. And he starts trying to pull together these sort of various factions and militias into a, a continental army. Um, that sort of, and then they uh, evacuated Boston. The evacuation day was the first Boston St. Patrick's Day parade of March 17th. Um, and so he, of 1776, um, and then they evacuated and then he marched on down to New York. Yes. So the Navy. Yes. So see, the plan was to invade after Bunker Hill to invade because he had gotten um, some uh, cannon from Fort Ticonderoga. And so he's supposed to want to use those because that those giving him an advantage. And the British Navy um, had not sent them any ships yet, so that was a good timing to to invade Boston. But you're right, another port. But the British had not sent their ships in yet. So what happened was once the Congress told them that he couldn't invade, um, then he just sort of sat there for a bit, and then they escaped up to Nova Scotia, and then then they came back with their navy to New York. Um, and then uh, Madison and Jefferson. I know it's, it was a sad thing. They're such a great team to begin with. Um, but yeah, during the presidency, um, Washington did not love the way things went down. I think he's one of his most upsetting parts of Washington's presidency is sort of the politics. It's the political faction. He warned against political faction. And he did not want political parties. Um, and of course, Jefferson, you know, and principally so, um, Started the Democrat Republicans and sort of different, you know, that you know, the Federalists versus the, the Jefferson's crew, and I think that that's what caused a lot of um, anguish for for Washington. Um, but eventually, um, John Adams and Jefferson eventually made up, right? You know, right before they died, they they at least made up. But Washington, he, um, he caught the flu and died long before that, so he didn't, he didn't make it. You have a question. question and 100% yes. So when they write that the president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, not only was Washington the only man who had ever been the American commander-in-chief ever, he's also the guy in the front of the room. So in the Constitutional Convention, he is the president of the convention. So they're looking, they're writing these things, and it's obviously what this guy had just done. And further, they know he's going to be the first president. No one's running against him. He was the only unanimously elected president. And his approval rating was near 100%, which sounds wild in today's, today's, in this era. But almost everyone agreed with him, which is bizarre to, for now. Um, and there, he, just, he was just that praised for the way he had conducted the war, for the way that he protected citizens' rights. They sort of, you know, like with your question with Smith, people came to see what he had done with that. 
they were angry with him at the time, but as as the war went on, oh, do you have another question? Um, yeah, so the treatment, um, so the other guy, remember we were talking about the two guys, Smith, the loyalist, and then John Andre, the, um, the British officer. John Andre was a much more lovable character. He um, was about 22 years old. He had left Britain because his fiance dumped him. He's much more into poetry than warfare. Alexander Hamilton thinks he's great. He meets him in, in, in prison. Um, he visits him in, in his little cell. And sure enough, Washington has him executed in two days. So that's the other side of Washington. So not only was he the civil libertarian fighting for American liberties, when foreign nationals threatened his people, he, he, would, he could smite them. I mean, that was sort of, it, he, was, he was very ferocious in defending his people. But it also shows the difference in his power. He had the power to do so. So Andre was giving a, um, a two-day military commission, um, which historically is a kangaroo court at the, up to the whims of the commander-in-chief need not have any due process. It was sort of uh, should they be shot or hanged kind of thing. And poor Andre, he asked to be shot because that was more honorable. And Washington wouldn't even give him that, he was hanged. Um, and so that shows, and when it came to prisoner, prisoners of war, Washington, it was his discretion. He did ask that the prisoners of war be treated humanely over and over again. However, there's some interesting episodes that sort of in the war, when they start, um, torturing, the British are torturing our, our prisoners. They were doing all sorts of awful things for our prisoners, you know, infecting them with smallpox, dumping them in the water, um, having these awful prison ships around Manhattan, um, really horrendous things. And Washington finds that his only recourse is to say, I'm gonna have to do this to your guys too. If you don't stop, I will do these awful things to your guys too. And it was, it was believed that was his power to do so. So as much as he didn't want to, and he wanted to set a precedent that we treated everyone humanely, um, when it came to defending his people, he saw as a lot of things on the table, which is sort of shocking. And but he was he was a fierce defender of his people. Um, but then, then sort of the presidency. So absolutely. So they knew he'd be the first president, and they knew that he would help fill the gaps in our knowledge. Um, in, in sort of constitutional law, we talk about you know, a lot about originalism and sort of what is the original understanding of we the people when they create the constitution. And that sort of should sort of enshrine the law. So, you know, what is the will of the people and what they have in mind? Um, and we should respect that because if you believe in democracy, you should care what the will of the people was when they created these laws. And if you think the laws now are dumb or, or should be changed, okay, then amend the constitution, which is very hard to do. But intentionally so, because we give these rights to, uh, under the Constitution, we want to make people, you know, darn sure they want to change them before they do. So, so when, they, when you look at originalism, the, in the purest sense, the most important precedents are those up until, until ratification, because that is what we the people thought and knew. Anything after that, things start getting corrupted, sort of, you know, natural human corruption. Um, and Washington was, you know, an amazing president um, and did incredible things and by all accounts, a great president. But even he, you know, there was, was, did he always hold true to everything that he had established? Maybe not. There's some, you know, arguments that um, 
with the sort of neutrality act and sort of the battle between France um, and England and trying to force, you know, the, the proclamations, the presidential proclamations around that. There's some arguments that he sort of overstepped his bounds. So anyway, so he was an amazing president and we should definitely look to his presidency to help us understand what the president should or should not be doing. It's definitely an important model. But I would argue that the most important model for the presidency is actually what we the people knew um, when they're when they're ratifying the Constitution back in Change rebellion. Yes. And how did that? How was was that the prior English law before the Constitution didn't embody those principles? And how did how did those shared principles impact on the different kinds of government without the Constitution? So Shay's rebellion. So after the war, the Articles of the Confederation are still governing, and we sort of have this very loose sort of system where um, people are saying, you know, troops are saying things like, no, I'm not American, New Jersey is my country, things like that they're saying. Um, and then Shays' Rebellion, these, the, the farmers sort of start um, fighting, and this time they're rebelling against the, um, the, the financiers in Boston. And they're wanting to overthrow the Massachusetts legislature. And they start marching, and they're sort of using, they're all the exact same patriots that had just fought the British. And they're sort of getting their arms again, and like, here we go again. Um, and this is what happens in so many revolutions, sort of constant, it turns into anarchy, because sort of where does it end? Washington came in and said, no, no, no. That's a democratically uh, elected legislature. You don't have to like what they voted on. But the answer, we fought this whole war. We established this, we fought all this, we established um, representation so that you, could, you, you fight with your vote. You no longer fight with your guns. And that was a huge distinction for Washington with what was done during the Revolutionary War without having representation and no choice but to, to fight tyranny with guns versus what Shays' rebellion was doing after the Revolutionary War and would say, no, you, didn't, you don't like what the legislature's doing. You vote them out. That's now that we just had this war and, and that's actually why I called the blood of tyrants because they wanted to create, they shed all this blood to overthrow a tyrant but they want the reason they did so was so that um, that they could make sure that the um, they didn't have to keep doing this over and over again because they wanted to sort of you know uh, you know the tree of liberty must be watered from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants you know the famous quote from Jefferson um, there he was trying to end that cycle of constantly having bloodshed in order to get good government instead it was sort of supposed to be up to a new uh, this new political process. Um, and Shays and you know the, the people in Shays Rebellion didn't really get that. Um, but Washington was very adamant that now that they're elected, you use your vote rather than fighting. 
Were there questions from online? Uh, can you speak to uh, King George's comments of why he didn't have the power to Oh yes, he said if this man will get, if they if he's not king, he'll become the great he'll be the greatest man in the world. I'm paraphrasing. Um, king George was right. I mean, this is again, this is look at history. Look what happens over and over again. Even today, everyone that gets power and someone wants to make them king, um, and I take it it's sort of very seductive, right? Um, the one, one, of my, one of my favorite episodes is Late in the War. It's the, the Newburgh Conspiracy. So you all know what this Newburgh Conspiracy? This is um, up in Newburgh, New York. The war is ending. Um, we're, it looks like we're going to win. But the American troops hadn't been paid because the, the government bankrupts. I mean, they don't have any money to pay anyone. So they say, we'll march on Philadelphia, which was our capital, and we'll just take a big chunk of land. Um, we'll sort of establish ourselves. Maybe some people want to establish Washington as king. Others just want to sort of take a big chunk uh, of sort of the, the Western portion of the country for the military. People have different plans, but none of it was great. I mean, sort of, like, sort of military, sort of a, a military coup of some sort. And they, um, they are at this old um, church in Newburgh and they have this meeting the officers and they're playing this this conspiracy to have a coup and Washington is not invited but he finds out he walks in and they're all sitting like this he marches in everyone stops they see the great Washington again just, just people are in awe of this man they see him march down the aisle come to the front and then he starts reading a letter from Congress. It was some sort of blame letter about how, um, oh, we're, we're working on getting you paid, like some, some sort of blame letter. But he's squinting and stumbling, and he finally reaches into a pot in his pocket and takes out a pair of glasses. And he's, um, now glasses during that time were seen as sort of a deformity. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, uh, for a military powerful man, to show any kind of weakness, like wearing glasses, as absurd as it sounds to us, um, was a real um, amazing revelation. And he says, oh, forgive me, but I've gone blind in the service of my country. The officers start weeping. They say, wait a second, this man has sacrificed so much. This was the general not you know, fighting from afar and giving orders. He was in the front lines, the Battle of Princeton, they, the, there was a volley between the two sides and Washington was right in the middle of it. And everyone thought he must be, must be the general must have been hit. But you hear from the smoke, it's a fine fox chase boys, charge! He was right in the middle of battle throughout the entire war. And then these officers like, we're going against his wishes. And it sort of reset, wait a second. You're right, we haven't gotten paid, but look what this man has done and look what we've built. And that, that is far more important than our getting paid. And that's how he, dis he dispelled the conspiracy. And he did not become king. And um, King George III was, you know, being a British monarch, could not conceive of such a thing. And of course, he says, if he does not become king, he'll be the greatest man in the world. And, and arguably, he was. <laughs> uh, last question here. Um, yeah, 
Well, I know that. So he did not defend Fort Lee, um, and Charles Lee saw that as a personal affront. Um, and Charles Lee said, oh, because it was named after me, it was not defended well. And Washington said, I don't, <laughs> that's petty, Charles. And he um, said, no, it's sort of geographically infighting and what he learned very quickly in the Battle of Long Island um, that he just could not, he, he hoped he could, you know, they, um, they said that, you know, when he couldn't retreat, he hoped that sort of the, the, the moral justice, I think he called it, of our cause would give us sort of superhuman fighting powers. And it did it. So, so he realized that he could not defend it. Um, so he realized that early in the war, um, our, well, the thing that we could do well, so the, the British were much better trained, much better armed, much better fed, you name it, there are more of them. But our strategic advantage was we we're really good at retreating. So you know what, you work with what you got. And Washington used that because again, he's not fighting a typical military battle. He is fighting a political one and he sees it as if I can keep my army intact, these, the British need to keep sending more and more forces until they, they get me. So that's why Fort, you know, Fort Lee, Fort, Fort Washington, he kept, he sort of kept, you know, trying to win because he instinctively wanted to sort of have the typical military victories. He tried very hard um, about, you know, Trenton and Princeton, he actually did achieve them. Um, and, and that was also very important for morale to have some victories, but the overall scheme, the grand scheme of the war, um, it was more important that he win that political battle and that political fight for liberty by showing himself as someone who's protecting the rights of, uh, of his citizens, his countrymen. Um, that was the most important aspect. Uh, Bob will close off. Okay, just one more. <clears throat> what influence did Washington serve? I think he served like 20 years in the Virginia colonial It showed that he was, um, that's how the people got to know him. They got to see him in action. And that's he, he was, he was a gentleman. He had a lot uh, at stake in, um, in siding with the revolution versus the British. Um, he had a lot to lose. So when he shows up at the Continental Congress uh, in you know, this is June, 1775, and he's there and he's putting his weight and his, his life and fortune behind this cause after having served so long and so you know well um, in the legislature, that gave us so much more punch. And that's how people knew him. Like this is this man. This is this is a huge person in Virginia. And also politically speaking, it's important that he was he was a Virginian. So we want to get the Virginians involved in this war. It's not just a Massachusetts war. So we also another you know people are practical too. They don't do anything for just one reason. And the other reason was this Virginian. From the Virginia, you know, former um, part of the Virginia legislature, if we make him commander in chief, we could help bring the Virginians in the South into this war. So it was very important to his his uh, appointment. Well, thank you very much for this engaging conversation. Let's form a round of applause for Logan. And, uh...